You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open to Job chapter 11. Job chapter 11, as we continue our series through the book of Job called When the Righteous Suffer. Today we come to the first speech of Job's third friend, Zophar the Namathite. We have already heard from Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad, Bildad the Shuhite, and today we hear from Zophar the Namathite. Like the first two friends, Zophar desires to bring comfort to his friend. Zophar has heard of his friend's suffering. He has seen with his own eyes the boil-infested body of this man who was once the greatest of all the people of the East. And he has raised his voice in weeping and in agony as he is grieved with his dear friend. But after several days with his friend, Zophar has become troubled Zophar is troubled by what he has heard coming out of the mouth of Job. He believes that Job has spoken falsely about God and about himself. Job has claimed that he is innocent, that he has not done anything to deserve the afflictions that God has given him. For Zophar, this was not only wrong, it was blasphemous. And so, even as Zophar tries to bring comfort to his friend, he also brings him a word of correction. In doing so, Zophar's worldview is exposed. It is exposed as having no comfort to offer to those who are suffering. Zophar believes in a world like Eliphaz and Bildad, a world where the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. There, there is no blending of those two experiences. When the righteous suffer, it reveals that they were truly wicked. And if the wicked prosper, it reveals that they were truly righteous. And that is an easy view to hold when life is good. When you are prospering, when your business is flourishing, when you are healthy and strong. It is easy to hold that view to say, well, I must be righteous because I am prospering. But when life is not so good, in times when life starts falling apart, we need a better way of seeing the world, a biblical way of seeing the world, if we are to find comfort for ourselves and perhaps for those who are suffering around us. The title of this sermon is Comfort for the Suffering comfort for the suffering. We'll have three points today. First, false comfort. Second, desired comfort. And third, ultimate comfort. Let's begin with false comfort. Zophar's speech begins in chapter 11, verse 2, with a rebuke. He says, should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men and when you mock, shall no one shame you? This is how Zophar is receiving Job's words. He is saying that he is full of a multitude of words. He is full of talk. 
that begs to be answered. Zophar calls Job's words babble that mocks. And it is babble that calls for Job to be shamed. Zophar believes that he is the right man to bring that shame. He says in verses four to six, the reason why he needs to be shamed. He says, Job, you say my doctrine is pure and I'm clean in God's eyes. Job is is claiming innocence here, but Zophar believes that he knows better. Zophar believes that Job is a sinner who deserves all of this suffering. And he's so convinced of it that he wishes that God himself would open his lips and address Job and rebuke him. But since God has deemed fit to remain silent, Zophar deems fit to speak on God's behalf. Verse 6, he says, Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Zophar is saying, Job, you think that you have it bad? Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you, it could be a lot worse for you. God could bring about so many more afflictions upon you if he gave you what you deserve, but as it is, he has withheld his hand of punishment. That's how guilty you are, Job. That's what you truly deserve. Now, as Christians, we know that this is technically true. Yes, things could always be worse for those who suffer. Things could have been worse for Job. He could be suffering an eternity in hell. But it is hard to imagine something worse for a friend to say to someone who is suffering like Job. The Christian counselor and author Ed Welch writes, such a comment is utterly thoughtless. God himself would never say or sanction it. God does not compare our present suffering to anyone else's or to worst case scenarios. God is not dismissive of our hardships and neither should we be. Zophar's problem is that he is trying to comfort Job without having compassion for Job. He's trying to make Job feel better while standing distant in self-righteous judgment for how Job is processing his pain. And that's never going to work. You're never going to be able to comfort someone without feeling compassion for them at the same time. The only way to comfort someone like Job is to enter into their pain, to, to listen, to ask questions, even if you may not fully understand their sorrows. Zophar then launches into this poem about God's inscrutability. He waxes eloquent about how God's ways cannot be understood. He says in verses seven and eight, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven, what can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Now that would be a beautiful poem. And a true poem if not for the insulting punchline at the end. In verse 12, he says, but a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. Zophar is labeling Job as the stupid man here. The stupid man who, will, who has just as much a chance to get true understanding as a donkey has a chance of giving birth to a human child. It is impossible, Zophar is saying, 
But on the other hand, Zophar, Zophar, he can understand the things of God. Zophar is not stupid like a wild donkey. Zophar understands, and so he tells Job, God, God is exacting of you less than you deserve. You know, I, I understand. You, you don't understand, but I do, and, and let me tell you. Uh, trust me. Zophar has made himself God's spokesman because he believes that he understands God's mind. And in verses 13 to 20, he presumes to speak on God's behalf again. He says, if you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hand toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. Let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. Zophar is making Job an offer. An offer on God's behalf. Job's repentance for God's restoration. If only Job puts away his iniquity, if he stops hiding injustice in his tents, then, Zophar says, you will forget all your misery. You will have security and you will have hope. But the problem is, Zophar does not speak on God's behalf because he does not understand God's mind. He doesn't understand like the readers of the book of Job, that God has already pronounced Job to be blameless and upright. God has already held Job up as the finest of his servants in all the earth. The problem here isn't Job's sin, which means that the solution here is not Job's repentance. But Zophar, Zophar, he he just doesn't understand this. He doesn't understand it because his moralistic framework for understanding the world does not accommodate Job's experience. Zophar believes that everything is going to be fine for Job if Job only gives God what he wants. But life doesn't work that way. And God doesn't operate that way. If anyone says to you that you can get what you want if you give God what he wants, then they are utterly, absolutely wrong. It doesn't matter if it is your friend who is trying to comfort you, trying to give you hope for a better future by saying, listen, you just need to have enough faith. Or you just need to repent of these and, th- and those hidden sins. It doesn't matter if it's, it's your comforting friend speaking to you in your ear or the prosperity gospel teacher who is preaching from a pulpit false doctrine on your television screen saying that, hey, Your best life awaits you if you just have enough faith, if you just trust in the Lord, or if you just give X amount of dollars, life will go the way that you want it. If they are teaching that, they are utterly wrong. And they do not understand the mind of God at all. The reality is that God is not a machine. He is not to be manipulated or controlled by us if we just pull the right levers. That is an offer of false comfort. There is no comfort in that projected future because God doesn't operate that way. Zophar was right when he said that we can't understand the things of God. 
But he was wrong when he made an, himself an exception to that. And whenever someone projects good things coming your way, if you just do the right things, if you just offer the right things to God, they're doing the same thing. They're presuming to know the mind of God. But God will not be put in a box. He will not be explained away. He does not operate on scientific principles because he is holy. He is eternal. He is the all-wise God of the heavens and the earth, the God who knows the beginning from the end, whose ways are higher than our ways, whose thoughts are not our thoughts. And that means that he will do things that we do not understand, that have no earthly answer. We must never presume like Zophar to know the thoughts of God. At least the thoughts of God not revealed to us in scripture. Because God has revealed his mind in his word. We, we can know the thoughts of God because we have the spirit of God and the word of God. But when we, like Zophar, presume to know what goes beyond scripture, we will end up offering people false comfort and do more harm than good. And that is how Job felt. That is how Job felt about Zophar's false comfort. He saw right through it, and he identified it as a counterfeit. He talks about that in chapters 12 and 13. He calls Zophar and his other two friends worthless physicians. They're offering him a remedy, a healing balm for his sorrow, but it, it is completely impotent. But as he describes his response to their false comfort, he also tells us what would actually bring him comfort which leads to our second point, desired comfort. Job begins his reply in chapter 12, verse two. He says, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. If you didn't pick it up, that verse is dripping with sarcasm. Don't, don't we do the same when we are frustrated or angry? With those around us, we, we speak sarcastically. Well, sarcasm existed in Job's world. He's not that different from us. He's saying, hey, surely you, you are you're the man. You're the man so far. You, you three, you are the people. And when you die, all the wisdom in the world, it's going to die with you. You detect the sarcasm, well, it's there. That's how Job feels. He is being sarcastic as he replies to his three friends. He is getting fed up with his friends. Job is tired of their self-righteous, pompous attitudes towards him and God. And he's ready to give them a piece of his mind. He tells them in verse three, I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Who, who does not know such things as these? Job knows that sinners suffer. Job knows that the righteous have the blessing and favor of God upon them to prosper. He, he knows those things. He doesn't need his friends to remind him of that. What he needs is someone to tell him why a man like him, a man who feared the Lord, who turned away from evil, why he suffered the way he did. But rather than giving him the answers he wants, his friends only give him contempt. Verses four and five, I am a laughing stock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughing stock. 
In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. Do, do you relate to that? Perhaps from Job's perspective, feeling that when you suffer, those around you are looking down on you? Or perhaps you actually relate to the friends. When you hear of the afflictions of others, perhaps you are tempted to look down on them. Perhaps you are tempted to shake your head and say, oh, they must have done something really bad to deserve that. Well, that's what Job's friends were doing to him. And when we have that attitude, we are adopting the empty, comfortless worldview of Job's friends that is not biblical at all. So, Job states his case yet again to prove that he is innocent. Verses seven to nine, ask the beasts, they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, they will tell you. The bushes of the earth, they will teach you. The fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? Job calls on nature to bear witness to his innocence and to bear witness that God himself has brought about his affliction despite his innocence. Job knows that God is wise and Job knows that God is mighty. Job has an utter confidence in the sovereignty of God. He affirms that in verses 13 and 16. But he also says, that God wields his wisdom and might in such a way that the mighty and the wise and the righteous fall without explanation or reason. He says in verses 17 to 23, he leads counselors away stripped. and judges, he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. He deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and loosens the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. Job knows that God is behind his suffering. Job knows that God is behind the raising up and the tearing down of the nations. And so he says in chapter 13, verses one and two, behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. For Job at these moments, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God brings him no comfort. Because if God is in control and God has done this to him, then how can God be trusted? Now, it's at this point that Job begins talking about the kind of comfort he truly desires. It's not the false comfort offered by his friends that everything's gonna be all right if he just does the right things. It's the comfort of hearing God speak and hearing God declare that Job is indeed innocent. Verse three, I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. In order for him to do that, he needs his friends to stop talking. Verse four and five, as for you, you whitewashed with lies, worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silence and it would be your wisdom. It's an interesting way to describe his friends. 
and a helpful concept for us to have. When, when, when we come along those who are suffering, God has given us the sacred responsibility of being a physician of the soul. To bring, to bring about a healing where there are wounds in their spirit. When their heart is broken, God calls us to bring comfort, to speak words that will actually bring healing. That, that is not just the responsibility of pastors. Though pastors are to have a, a special knowledge and skill in doing so. That is the, the, the responsibility of all who belong to God's people. To, to be physicians of the soul. To know how to treat those who suffer in their hearts. But Job's friends, they were worthless physicians. And so the time has come, Job says, for them to be silent. Verse 13, let me have silence and I will speak and let come on me what may. Job is aware of what may happen to him if he presumes to speak to God. I mean, he is not speaking as a New Testament believer. He is speaking as, as, as a believer in the Old Testament where if you touch the mountain of God, you die. If you try to balance the Ark of the Covenant as it is shaking, you die. And so he says, I will speak to him and let come on me what may. He is aware that God is holy and God is just and God is full of wrath towards sin. God could consume him at any moment, but that will not deter him. He will speak to God regardless of the cost. He even says in verse 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Job is willing to risk his life to have an audience with God. Like Esther, who knew that if she came unsummoned by the king who was her husband, she risked her life. But Job says, I, I will speak to him. Though he slay me, he will what? I will hope in him. Job, Job is willing to take the risk because he knows that God is the only one who can offer him any comfort. His only hope lies in the God who could consume him in his wrath. God is the only one who can give him the answers he's looking for. God is the only one who can give him the comfort that he desires. God is the only one who can vindicate him as one who is truly innocent. And so Job says, though he slay me, I will hope in him, even if it costs me my life. Job is showing us the power of a weakened faith. Job's faith is weak right now. There's no way to get around it. He has said things about God that are not true. And he is terrified of God in a way that does not reflect the fear of the Lord in Scripture. His faith is weak as it is being tested, and it, as the pressure is pressing in on his faith, as his faith is being brought through the fires of God's affliction, it is weak. But there is power in weak faith. There is power in this weak faith, power enough to bring him before the throne of God, even if it meant losing his life. It was powerful enough to make Job hope in God, even though it was God who took away his wealth, 
Even though it was God who took away his health, even though it was God who, who took away his children, even though it was God who sent him his wife and his friends, not to comfort him, but to tempt him. Jesus said that if you have faith like a mustard seed, the smallest of the seeds, you have faith that can move mountains. And here we see Job's small faith moving the mountains of his doubt, the mountains of his fears to approach the throne of God. Job is showing us that there is no such thing as weak faith as long as your faith leads you to prayer. There is no such thing as weak faith if that faith leads you before the throne of God. You can have doubts. You can have complaints about God. You can have moments of sarcasm. But if your faith still leads you to bring it before the throne of God, you have all the faith that you need in that moment. That that is what true faith looks like. A faith that perseveres through the deepest of doubts and sorrows. David Kleins writes, a truly religious attitude is not passive resignation to misfortune, but includes the courage to enter into dispute with God. That is a phrase that we would do well to remember, that faith includes the courage to enter into dispute with God. Job has the courage to enter into dispute with God, and as he does, he reveals that there is something else that he is looking for, something else that God could give him that would bring him ultimate comfort. And that leads to our final point. Job begins his dispute with God in chapter 13, verse 20, as he shifts his audience from his friends to his God. And this prayer stretches from chapter 13, verse 20, to the end of chapter 14. And in this prayer, Job does not so much ask God for things as he tells God how he feels. In verses 23 and 24, he asks, how many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Job wants to know if he has sinned and if he deserves the suffering. He, he is not aware of anything in his own life or in his own heart that would bring about this situation as God's just deserts upon him, but he wants to know. He wants to know if he has done something wrong to deserve this pain. And then he tells God how he feels about the life that God has given to mankind. Verse 28, man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. You want to know how Job feels about his life? You want to know what Job thinks about when he thinks about the miracle of human life? He thinks about death. He thinks about rotting flesh. He thinks about life wasting away. That life is nothing more than an inevitable march towards death. An inevitable rotting and wasting away from which there is no return. He says in chapter 14, verses one and two, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. 
That, that is Job's view of human life. And he then contrasts that view with the life that he finds in nature, specifically the life of a tree, verses seven to nine. For there is hope for a tree. If it be cut down, that it will sprout again, that its shoots will not cease. Though its roots grow old in the earth, its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. Trees. Job envies trees because trees can live again. Trees, if you cut them down, they can grow back up. Trees, if you deprive them of water, you bring about a little stream and a little bud shoots out of the stump. But not man. For Job, death is the end of man. Verses 10 to 12. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last and where is he? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. You see, you see what Job believes. Job believes that this life is all there is. This life is all we have. Job has one life to live, and then he's gone. No fresh buds coming out of his stump. Once his flesh is rotten and eaten up, he is gone. He is gone for good. He will live, he will die, and then he will sleep forever. Now we understand, at least we understand a little bit better, why Job was so hopeless. His hope was contained within this lifetime. It did not stretch into any life to come. He had no children to carry on his legacy. He had no wealth to invest in worthwhile causes that might endure past his life. All he had was his broken body in an ash heap covered with boils from head to foot. But Job, he is beginning to wonder. He wonders if there might be more to life than he knows, a life that stretches beyond his present wretched existence. He says in verse 13, oh, oh, that you would hide me in shale, that is, the place of the dead. Hide me there that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. Job is saying, could, could that be possible? Could you hide me for a time in the place of the dead and then at, a, at an appointed time bring me up again? Could that be possible? Or as he asks in verse 14, if a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. Job is saying, God, this is what would sustain me in my suffering. If I knew that this was not all there is to my existence, that there is hope to come, that there is life to come, that there is restoration to come, if, if that were the case, then all the days of my hard service on earth, I would wait I would wait for that day until the day that my renewal should come. Job imagines what this would be like in verses 15 to 17. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag 
and you would cover over my iniquity. Job is imagining a life of restored fellowship with God. A life when God would call and Job would not shrink away in terror, but answer. A life when God would number his steps without numbering his sins. A life when all of Job's transgressions would be sealed up in a bag and thrown away in the ocean of God's mercies, never to be seen again. Job is not just imagining restoration. Job is imagining resurrection. Resurrection. He is longing for a day when God's wrath has finally passed him by, when there is no more punishment, no more condemnation, no more terrors from God to fear. If there were a day like that, then Job would have hope. Then he would have reason to persevere. Even if his wretched existence does not change, he would endure to the end and wait for his renewal to come. But for Job, this was nothing but a fantasy. Nothing but a figment of his imagination. Because for him, there was no resurrection. Verses 18 to 22, but the mountain falls and crumbles away. The rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones. The torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor him. He does not know it. They are brought low and he perceives it not. He feels only the pain of his own body and he mourns only for himself. For Job, there was no resurrection to look forward to. There was only pain. His world was a world of suffering. And he was so consumed by his present wretched suffering that he could spare no pain for anyone else. Nothing would change his wretched existence as far as he knew. But for the Christian, for the Christian, we know that something has changed that. We know that there is such a thing as resurrection. We know that there is a life to come, a glorious, restored, renewed life made possible by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ is the reason why we have hope. Christ is the reason why God conceals his wrath from us. God's wrath does not just dissolve and dissipate with time. It must be satisfied. It must either be satisfied in our eternal punishment in hell or by our substitute sacrifice. And that is what Christ came to be. He came to die as the Lamb of God, as our substitute sacrifice so that God's wrath would be satisfied by his death. His wrath would pass over us and onto him instead. My friends, this is the hope of all those who trust in Christ. We have hope because Christ died for the sins of all who trust in him. He died so that all who call upon the name of the Lord would be saved from the judgment of God. We will be saved from the wrath and justice of almighty God. 
as our transgressions are sealed up in a bag and thrown into an ocean of God's mercy. So that when God calls us, we would not shrink away in terror, but we would come and answer him. We, we will answer him with confidence because we have been clothed not with the worms and dirt of Job's wretched existence, but clothed with the righteousness of Christ himself, sealed with his spirit and forgiven of all our sin. My friends, this is good news. And it is good news that the crucified Christ is now the risen Christ. He has died and he has risen again so that all who belong to him will also rise again, not to eternal punishment, but to eternal life. That is the hope that Job longed for. That is the comfort that would bring him ultimate satisfaction. And that is the hope and comfort that we have in Christ. We, we have the hope that this life in this world is not the sum total of our existence. We don't need to be defined by our present sorrows because a better day is coming. A glorious day of resurrection when those who die shall live again in blessed, unbroken, unstained fellowship with God. And so, are you suffering today? Are you, like Job, consumed by your pain and your sorrow? Are you despairing of life itself, feeling that your life has no meaning, you have no hope, you have nothing to look forward to, then if, if, if that is you, then put your hope in the risen Christ. Look to the day of resurrection because on that day, all your tears will be wiped away. Death shall be no more. There shall be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain for the former things will have passed away. My friends, that day is coming. It is coming to us as certain as the sunrise. So let us wait. Let us wait for that day. Let, let that day be the day that we patiently wait for as we await our renewal in Christ. On that day, we will stand in the presence of God, forgiven, restored, and beloved for day upon day, upon day, without end. God will make all things right. Let us wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, what a hope we have in Christ who died for our sins and rose so that we could have hope of a new day, a better day, when all the wrongs we have experienced and received, all the sorrows we have experienced would be swallowed up in glory forever. We pray, Father, that the hope that we have in Christ that Job did not know of would sustain us and give us peace and endurance to finish this race that you have assigned to us we ask in Jesus' name, amen.